Welcome to Dog Training Disrupted by Upward Dogology, where I retrain your brain and introduce you to the world of cognitive behavioral therapy for dogs over the age of six months. In this episode, I refer to a scientific study conducted by the Dog Rehoming Project. The Dog Rehoming Project believes rescue organizations are putting too much focus on the pre-adoption process by incorporating stringent rules into their adoption forms and feel the rescue organizations should focus more on the post-adoption procedure. Why are the rescues focusing on this pre-adoption procedure? Are the recommendations made by industry experts meeting their needs? Perhaps the solution lies in connecting the pre- and post-procedures. In this episode, I provide one simple tool from the Upper Dogology formula that is proven to increase successful adoptions by improving the bond and communication between the foster, the adopter, and the dog. And I'm the kind of girl can roll like a guy, but I really don't know. If you're ready for the ride, I'm Hello, I'm Billy Groom, your host and successful dogologist for over three decades and expert in canine cognitive behavioral therapy. I recently had a Zoom conversation with Dr. Karen Griffin of the Dog Rehoming Project, a nonprofit organization consisting of scientists, behavioral veterinarians, and other experts. The focus of this organization, in a nutshell, is on research and providing funding for research. Karen shared with me a bit about a recent study they conducted where they scientifically proved the post-adoption process or the integration program has a greater effect on the success of the adoption than having a lengthy and stringent adoption form. This study stemmed from rescue organizations incorporating very detailed policies and requirements for adoption. I've worked with hundreds of rescue organizations in many parts of the world. We have a great relationship that benefits the rescue organization, dog owners, adopters, and my business, and most importantly, the dogs. When dog owners contact organizations to surrender, these organizations recommend Upward Dogology, and this saves them from having to take the dog. It also keeps the dog in their great home. I work with fosters who are often very experienced but are challenged by a specific dog. And I work with adopters who do not want to return the dog but are struggling to effectively integrate the dog into their lives. When I work with rescue groups or individual fosters, I don't get involved in the policies. However, as with the Dog Rehoming Project, I have noticed the increase in lengthy and detailed adoption forms and pre-adoption processes over maybe the last five years or so. I've asked the rescue organizations about this, and they said it was to proactively prevent situations which have proven to lead to returns. Sounds fair. According to this study by the Dog Rehoming Project, the focus should be on the post-adoption process. I agree, but in reality, shouldn't the pre and post work together? The solution is to provide a system where the foster and the adopter connect. Now, this may not be literal or hands-on, but a program where the work that the foster has done and the knowledge that they've gained on the dog is easily transferred to the adopter, and the adopter gains the skills on how to apply these to increase the chances of success. This is the most important for dogs over the age of six months. Because with dogs over the age of six months, we're not simply teaching them right from wrong, but we have to learn what they already know and recognize their skills. Commonly, fosters take an active role when they're fostering dogs. They teach basic skills such as socialization and house training, so on and so forth. And when the rescue organization feels the dog is adoptable, the adoption posts 
for these dogs commonly include this information. These are done much like a ticking the box style. So for example, good with kids or good with cats or house trained or crate trained or treat motivated or likes walk. What are the skills the dog learned to achieve these? Not the reward, the skill. What commands does the dog know? And how are these perceived by the dog? And how are they taught and applied? Let's use the example of a stable, well-adjusted dog, not one with anxiety or aggression or, or issues, but basically an all-around happy dog and let's say about a year old. So the foster uses the term treat motivated because they use treats to accomplish what they have taught. Based on the recommendations made by industry experts, the adopter continues to use the treats to teach the dog essentially what they've already learned. Perhaps they go back to class training. This seems logical. However, if the dog is constantly returned to basic exercises or going to class training, they view the person as not recognizing their skill set and not having the ability to advance and work with them. Once they know a sit, stay, go for a treat, for example, we need to advance these. We need to recognize the skills that they're learning, not the fact that the treat taught the skills. If each foster home or new home are reverting back to basic puppy exercises, this will cause many dogs to rebel and cause problems that lead the dog to be returned. The breakdown is the lack of transferable skills and the dog's perception of the new family and their ability to know what he knows and how to harness those skills. The rehoming process needs to start with the foster. This is where we establish transferable skills. These are created using both contrived and non-contrived rewards. Contrived rewards are the common reward such as treats or other types of rewards like toys. Opportunity-driven rewards or non-contrived rewards are ones individual to the dog dependent on the moment and the situation. They occur when the dog wants something that we also want him to have. This could be getting on the couch or in the car. Or these could be incorporated into larger routines, such as the morning routine. This could also be incorporated into the preparation for going on a walk. We establish these exercises and we insert transferable skills. That could be a reset and a release command or a recall, or if needed, a sit. The transferable element is not the reward. It's the skill set. It's the exercises. When applied in the new home, the dog views the adopter as, hey, you know what I know. You know my language. And it allows the adopter to apply the skill set in a way that fits in with their life. They can creatively apply it to change routine, teach house rules, bond, and communicate. The calm and consistent guidance prevents the honeymoon period, which often involves behaviors that we don't like and often leads to returning the dog. This example is simply one part of a full adoption formula incorporated in the Upper Dogology program. It is so simple and it makes so much sense. When taught and applied following the Upper Dogology program, the dog sees the value in listening and bonding with the new family. The formula allows the humans to read the dog and calmly and proactively guide and direct. It really is a beautiful thing to see. By forwarding skills to the adopter, the dog views the adopter as understanding how to relate to him, communicate with him, guide and direct, and understanding the level that he's at. Remember, adopted dogs over the age of six months have skills. There is no need for correction. 
They can do no wrong. They feel how they feel and they do what they do. We need to build platform skills that not only prevent problems, but allow us to effectively address any issues that arise and also address aggression and anxiety. To address aggression and anxiety, we must harness the cognitive skills that change the perception to change behavior. To do this, we need a solid platform of skills that can be advanced and applied. That's how CBT is designed. And that is why if this starts at the foster and then is transferred to the adopter, it makes so much sense to the dog. So for more information on how CBT works, please listen to the episodes in season one. So again, I never tell rescue organizations what they should or shouldn't do. Their policies are their own. But when dogs are returned by adopters, it is commonly due to the inability for the adopter to bond or connect or communicate with the dog. This can be frustrating for rescues, and they're often unable to accommodate a return as they are short on fosters, and in particular ones who want to take a returned dog. Some organizations require that some of the dogs to go to experienced dog owners, but what does this really mean? Each dog is individual, and they're not puppies. So the focus needs to be on the dog's skill set and harnessing their cognitive skills, relating to their individual personalities and needs, and choosing a home that matches that. This is tricky to do with a structured, regimented, across-the-board adoption process. Having said that, I do know rescue organizations who override their own rules and policies in the better interest of the dog. So I agree with the Dog Rehoming Project on their findings, but the question is, why do rescues feel the need to implement such strict adoption policies? Because they are seeing returns at a high rate. Many rescue organizations are looking for solutions beyond the ones presented in the training realm that are to be applied in the post-adoption. But because the industry experts only recommend methods they are already trying, ones grounded in conditioning methods. They are applying these with little success, so they create other changes in hopes these will prevent returns. These are not intended to have a negative effect, but they can. Too stringent of an adoption procedure can prevent good homes from adopting a dog, and extensive application forms can take away from recognizing the individuality of dogs and the individuality of adopters. Other changes incorporated by rescue organizations and in Industry experts that exemplify the challenges faced by rescue organizations are, again, intended to increase successful adoptions, but can have unwanted repercussions. For example, philosophies such as the three-day, three-week, three-month. This philosophy is intended to educate adopters and encourage patience and compassion. It can, however, discourage people from adopting or fostering, simply relying on time and patience, while having to simply manage behaviors common in the adoption process is not something people want or can realistically do. People have patience and they want to learn. So when what they are advised to do is not effective, they blame themselves and feel they have no option but to return the dog. They feel guilty for not completing the three-month period. But is it really their fault? Does this philosophy unjustifiably put the blame on the adopters? Trainers recommending avoidance, distraction, or simply Managing aggression and behavior, in other words, just having to accept it, is a clear indication of the inability to address these problems and can discourage people from keeping the dog. The perceived need for a decompression period where, aside from overcoming exhaustion from travel or recuperating from health-related issues, is not needed with every dog. 
Some dogs will take advantage of the lack of direction, and other dogs will feel lost or uncomfortable. Applying transferable skills, if the dog came from a foster or or from a home, or establishing these skills and learning about the dog can start right away at the pace of the dog. Dogs appreciate it and view it as bonding. Terms such as a slow introduction or the need to rely on the crate to prevent problems may be needed depending on the dog, but they also can indicate an inability to confidently integrate the dog. Behavioral euthanasia rates are far too high, and this can be emotionally devastating to rescuers, fosters, and adopters when they feel they must euthanize. This is why the program needs to start pre-adoption, justifying euthanasia by claiming the dog came from such a terrible condition or was suffering emotionally and needed to be euthanized for the better interest of the dog is unacceptable. We need to question why the dog got to that state. How many times had the system failed that dog? Why was he surrendered initially? And if he just simply began life in a crappy situation, then why are the methods unable to rehabilitate him? Conditioning methodologies that make up the core of conventional training techniques cannot meet the needs of all dogs, nor should they be expected to. They're not designed to do that. So by incorporating upward dogology into mainstream dog training and adoption integration process, rescue organizations see fewer returns and fewer requests for surrenders. Fewer dogs are euthanized for behavioral reasons. Adopters and fosters are successful and dogs are in happy homes. If you got your dog from a rescue organization, ask them what their struggles and challenges are. Ask them who they look to for advice and direction. As always, I appreciate your continued support, so perhaps suggest that they listen to this podcast. Yeah, I wish I could hear what you're thinking. You can't say the words, but buddy, I'm listening. Just know that I'll never stay mad. You're still my good boy. Thanks again to our musicians, Danielle Borgdiord and Brian John Harwood both huge animal lovers. You can find their links in the show notes as well as the links to my Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. You can also email me at billy at upperdogology.com with any questions or comments. And as always, enjoy your learning journey.